They've been called the Google generation and the MTV generation and the iPod generation. And since events like 9-11, they've also been dubbed the cynical generation. But perhaps they are best known simply as Generation Y, spanning the ages of roughly 10 to 25 years old. If these synonyms are to be believed, they are a generation dependent upon technology, devoted to music, and deeply, deeply cynical about the world they see around them. Of course, they are only the latest in a very long line of such generational groups. Uh, Before the war, and some of you maybe even remember, there was the silent generation. And after the war, the baby boomers, and then coming up behind them quickly, the baby busters, and most recently, Generation X. Who knows, maybe Generation Z is on the way. However, whatever you think of labels like that, One thing I am sure that we can all agree on is that there is such a thing as generations. We speak all the time, don't we, of generational trends. Because we recognize that groups of people in particular places and in particular times can and often will exhibit common behaviors and common beliefs. This is certainly true in the world around us, is it not? But what may surprise you, perhaps you've never thought much about this, is that this is often true also, even within the church, within the people of God. Of course, we know that Scripture affirms the vital importance of our personal relationship with God. And yet scripture also indicates that various generations of people may respond to God in quite uniform ways. So some generations could broadly be categorized as generation U. People of unbelief. And on the other hand, we find generations who by and large trust in God. We might call them generation F's. Generations of faith. And tonight as we continue our studies in the book of Hebrews, living by faith, we consider such an example of corporate faith. Hebrews 11 verse 30 tells us, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people, the corporate group, marched around them for seven days. Now, what lessons can we learn from this community of faith in Hebrews uh, 11 and also in Joshua chapter 6? You might want to turn to Joshua 6. That will be the main passage for our study. And perhaps you might want to have your finger also in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 for the comment on that. Since this faith arises in a hostile wartime situation... We've called the sermon, Faith and Victory. Faith and Victory. I guess the main question that we need to ask and answer tonight is, what kind of generation, what kind of people will we be? And if our response is, as I hope it is, 
we want to be a people of faith, then as we have been seeing in James in the mornings, we must be a people who have a faith that works, a faith that moves, a faith that mobilizes. And this is what we find in this passage. Three movements that the faith community makes. So here's the first from the context going forward. Going forward. Maybe if you've watched one of those uh, great uh, films, blockbusters, which depict some battle scene or other, you might recall that in most of them they tend to vamp up the suspense by spending significant time in a protracted pre-battle build-up. And uh, nothing much happens for a few minutes. The armies stand in their long, deep lines, sizing up the opposition. There's a few grunts here and there. Uh, But what happens in some films is the commander comes down the front of the line and he says something like this. He says, we're going to fight. And if you're courageous, come fight with us. But if you are a coward, we won't force you to fight. You can leave, go home. And play it safe. And almost always, one or two people overcome with terror, flee for their lives. The only exception I've seen to this is in Braveheart, where all the Scots, all the Scots, stand still. It's not the perfect picture, but in some ways it does marry well with the kind of choice that Joshua 6 presupposes. Except in this case, it's not so much an individual choice, it is a corporate and generational choice. If you skim down Hebrews chapter 11, what you find is that nearly all the exemplars of faith are individuals. Moses, Abraham, Rahab. In fact, there is only two exceptions to this. Hebrews 11 verse 30, Joshua's generation. And also, Hebrews 11, verse 29. Moses' generation. We considered it last week. We read, by faith, the people, notice again the corporate, passed through the Red Sea. And no question, it was a great act of faith. And yet the sad follow-on was that this previous generation did not maintain this faith commitment. Only months later, Moses' contemporaries arrive at the threshold of the promised land. They send twelve spies in to size up the opposition. And ten men, upon their return, report, the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And only two men, Joshua and Caleb, give the conflicting assessment. The land we pass through is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. A land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. The people had a choice to make. Would they choose comfort or conflict? Would they fear man or would they have faith in God? And the record of history shows that that generation chose comfort over conflict. They chose fear over faith. And therefore the Lord promised, not one of you will enter the land. I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. In passing, it's a frightening thought, is it not? 
that a whole generation might miss out on the blessing of God because they choose comfort over conflict. But notice the parallel, 40 years on now, with the present generation. Joshua's contemporaries, yet again, are on the threshold of the promised land. And like their forefathers, they too have just witnessed a great miracle. Not the crossing of the Red Sea, but this time the crossing of the river, the River Jordan. And the same enemy lies ahead. What will they do? What will they choose? Which direction will they go? Forward, back, advance, retreat. Joshua 6 tells us plainly what the answer was. They do not lodge at the Jordan River, but between chapters 4 and 5, we see them traveling forward, heading towards Jericho. And no doubt when they got there, some may have wondered if it was a good decision. Because as they saw Jericho, it was a formidable foe. It was an obstacle on the way into the promised land. They couldn't bypass it. And on the one hand, it was defensively strong. Joshua 6.1, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Archaeology suggests that they were probably quite used to facing sieges in Jericho. They had a water supply within the city. They probably had plenty of provisions stored up for a day like this. And so they could stay behind closed gates for months on end, no problem. And they could also sit secure behind their walled security. Now we don't know the exact dimensions of the walls. It's been various excavations of the area. Most archaeologists seem to think that the wall was probably two adjoining walls. An outside and an inside barrier about 40 metres or so in total height. But even if they could get through this wall, it was a problem too, because Jericho seemed offensively dangerous. We read of the king and fighting men, you notice in verse 2. Kings in those days were sort of uh, army leaders, essentially. And you notice uh, also the fighting men. One translation calls them the men of valour. These Jericho men had fought a battle or two. Even though they were outnumbered, they would have a fair chance against these Israelites who had swung their swords at nothing but cactus plants for 40 years. You see, all in all, the picture that's being painted is that Jericho is no easy beat. And Christian brothers and sisters, as we relate this to ourselves, let's be reminded of some familiar but very important truths. The first is that we... To have an enemy. We have an enemy. Of course, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Not a group of people as in this unique historical situation. But we do face enemies. Indeed, we face a three-pronged attack. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2 as the world, the sinful nature, and the devil. And it is because these enemies exist That we mustn't forget our role as spiritual soldiers. As those who fight for God and his kingdom. Paul the Apostle often spoke of love and peace in Christ. Wonderfully true. But he also said things like, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.3 Timothy, I give you this instruction so that by following it you may fight the good fight of faith. 
1 Timothy 1.18. And in Ephesians 6, well known, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. Now, the question that I was asking as I was thinking about this is, would Paul, in Charlotte Chapel, using that kind of language, sound strange today? Maybe he would sound strange, perhaps. In many parts of the Western church, such warfare imagery is being extracted from the prayer vocabulary, from the preaching, from the songs, and ultimately from the minds of the church. I mean, I've heard people say, I don't like that song, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. It sounds a little militant. But Paul was militant, you see. Because every day, in every city he went, he knew that he had a battle to fight against the world's systems and the flesh's enticements and the devil's traps. Do we have that wartime mindset? During the Second World War, if you speak to some of your grandparents perhaps, you'll know that people live differently because they lived in a wartime situation. Spent money differently. Invested time differently. Had different priorities. Trivial pursuits were laid aside because it wasn't playtime, it was wartime. Christian, we have enemies too. And a second truth intensifies it. We have powerful enemies. Is it not true that the world and the flesh and the devil are no easy beat? They are defensively strong, offensively dangerous. If it were not so, Paul and the other New Testament writers surely wouldn't have spilled so much ink speaking of how we contend with them. Perhaps we need to talk about this, friends, a little more than we do. My little challenge as you go down into the lounge afterward. If someone asks you how you're doing, uh, don't give them the stock answer, fine. Unless you actually are fine, but that's rare, I think. When you ask Christians, how are you doing? What kind of week have you had? 90% say fine. Fine. Really. Maybe actually for most of us, if we're being honest, it's been a fight that week. And the thing is that that person has probably, you're speaking to, that person probably has been struggling with sins in their life. Temptations of all sorts. Pressures of the world to squeeze it into their mold. And are fine doesn't help them very much. And they think, I'm the only one in a battle. Something must be wrong. There's nothing wrong. If you're a Christian, it is a struggle. And it will continue to be because the enemy will not be quickly defeated. So notice, secondly, the next movement of faith. Going forward and then marching around. As Israel face up to their formidable foe, they no doubt grasp that in their own strength, this is mission impossible. But if one thing is clear from Joshua chapter 6, it is that Israel are not alone. No, God is with them. And the Lord is working out his purposes through them. And we find this interplay in the passage. It's so interesting. A cooperating with the divine strategy. You see, on the one hand, we see what the Lord will do. What he promises in verse 2 through his messenger. 
See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and fighting men. And what an amazing promise this is. You notice that it is in the perfect tense. You know, if I promise to borrow your CD uh, for a week, or to bring you a CD that you'd like to listen to, if if I say that, I'll put it in the future tense. I'll bring that. I will do that. Future tense. It is something I will do in the future. But the Lord does not say, I will deliver. He says, I have delivered. So that in some sense, even before the battle, the Lord is saying, I am so powerful. I am so committed to Jericho's downfall that it's as good as done. Now that is wonderfully applicable to Christians in at least two senses. Number one, we do not believe in dualism. That God and evil powers are of an equal strength vying for supremacy. And who will win? God is far superior. He can say even before the battle, I have delivered. And there's also this encouraging reality. Listen to this. That God's people fight not so much for victory, but from victory. Not just for victory, but from victory. We wage a war that we know we will win. We know that the Lord is with us. You notice that Israel was reminded of this all the way through the narrative. First of all, by his presence symbolized in the Ark of the Lord in verse 4. Whenever they marched around the city, this consecrated container of the Ten Commandments was carried in front of them as a reminder that the Lord was present with them. And as well as this, you notice too, the various sevens in the passage. As they march around, there are to be seven priests and seven days of marching and seven times around the city on the seventh day. This was a reminder not only of the Lord's presence, but of the six days of creation with the rest day on the seventh. The the number seven came to represent God's perfection, the completion of God's work. So they have the ark to remind them of the Lord's presence. And they have these numerical pointers that refer them to the work of the Lord and how he will complete his work. Believers, you know, we need to be reminded of this too. That there are certain things that we cannot do and only the Lord can do. So your justification, your right standing with God is something that he does. Your sanctification, becoming progressively holy, like Christ, is in the final analysis something that the Lord does. And yet, we must be aware of reductionism, in case we say, well, if God does all this, we can sit back, put our feet up, take it easy. Not quite. There is a cooperation in this passage, notice, with the divine strategy. What the Lord will do on the one hand, and what they will do on the other. Israel, you notice, is given certain instructions, which for their part they must obey precisely. Maybe as Alec was reading the passage earlier, verses 1 to 5 and verses 6 to 25 seem repetitive. They are repetitive. Because the people express their faith by obeying God's word to the end. They don't question the Lord. They don't query Him. 
Lord, don't you want us to do the normal seas type things? Uh, perhaps we could ram the gates, dig some trenches, construct a nice battering ram. I mean, with respect, Lord, how will walking around a wall even a hundred times achieve anything? But they don't ask that. Joshua simply receives the instructions without question. He then passes them on to the people who don't question it either. And they do the whole gambit. March around the city. One, two, three, four, five, six times. Seven priests. Ark of the Covenant. Seven trumpets. Silence, as was asked for. And then on the seventh day, probably pretty tired by this point, march around the wall seven times. It seems almost too obvious to say that they obeyed the instructions precisely and also that they obeyed them patiently too. I mean, just imagine the monotony of walking around the same wall 13 times. Some of you may be visitors to Edinburgh. You quite like the look of Edinburgh Castle, and it is nice. Just imagine walking around it 13 times. Same rocks, same formation. But they do it. The Lord said it. That's a real challenge for us, isn't it, as individuals and as a community. We may know that in the grand scheme of things, God is in control. He's leading us to victory. And yet, perhaps, we cannot make head nor tail of his specific instructions. And it is no matter. We need to obey precisely and patiently. Alec was mentioning prayer earlier. Take prayer as an example and I hope you'll be at the prayer meeting on Wednesday. Uh, This isn't to discourage you. But have you ever thought to yourself that prayer seems a strange way to fight a battle? Prayer? Maybe I'm the only one. We know God's instruction. It is to pray without ceasing. And yet sometimes we might think or feel this isn't really achieving anything. Seems about as effective as walking around a brick wall Thirteen times expecting something to happen. Or another example. Singleness. A lot of single people in the room on Sunday evenings. You know the world says that you are crazy, don't you? Not just silly, you are crazy to hold out for sex in marriage. And not just in marriage, but in Christian marriage. That is bizarre to the world. But here is the truth too. Sometimes it seems bizarre to you. And in certain moments, as years perhaps pass by, you wonder, am I crazy? Do I really need to obey this instruction? Feels like I'm just wandering around these walls again and again and again. Well, if that is you, then take courage from the final part of the story. We're going forward, marching around, and finally... Entering in. Sure, it was with uh, some relief after Joshua's command that the people of Israel could at last break their silence and shout. And yet we wonder how many were amazed at what transpired as in a few short moments the walls fell down, not outward, not inward, but straight down flat. So that the people, verse 20, charged straight in. And the conclusion, of course, to this is a battle. There are many thorny issues related to this, perhaps for some of you. Maybe you think it's troubling that God would ordain such a slaughter as this of these Canaanites. 
Well, it's only half a dodge uh, when I tell you that I'm not going to deal with it in too much depth tonight because Peter Granger, if you come in two weeks' time, he's going to deal with it in detail as we look at Rahab. But suffice to say for now that the Canaanites were no random choice. They had resisted God for four centuries, engaged in extreme wickedness, and the wrath of God had finally risen to the brim and to overflowing. Now, of course, the situation here is very specific in history, in the history of salvation, in the biblical story. It cannot be applied in a sort of very direct way, but there are some general principles that might carry over to us in the church as we think about the conclusion of the battle that the church are involved in. I hear two echoes in this text. And the first is this, that victory for the Christian as for them is for the glory of God. This whole miracle, you see, was designed to point always and only to God. And even the taking of the city is designed to that end. This is why the Lord commands Israel not to take the spoils for themselves. Joshua 6.18 Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Usually, if you won a battle, it was your prerogative to take the spoils, the gold, the silver, and any sacred thing. And it really became a way of gloating about your victory. But the Lord wanted to protect them, protect them from pride, protect them from idolatry. But ultimately, he wanted them to worship him alone. Verse 21 says, they devoted therefore the city to the Lord. And in verse 24, they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord. So we are giving glory to the Lord in the victory. See, someone has once said, even in the victories God gives, there lurk temptations for his people. So that even as we may see the kingdom of God slowly claiming ground on planet earth, friends becoming Christians, yet there is an even a danger in that. Not to give the glory to the Lord. And I was thinking about this in relation to our church. I'm sure many of us would love it if the Lord moved in a mighty way and we saw great conversion growth in this church. Say that in a year's time, every member of Charlotte Chapel saw one friend, one colleague come to faith in Christ. And we went from 1,000 attenders on a Sunday to 2,000 attenders on a Sunday. But, you know, I was wondering to myself, could God trust us with that? Could we handle that kind of victory? Or would pride swell up? Our own self-aggrandizement. Could he trust us with giving that kind of victory? You see, if we seek our own glory, we defy the goal that God has for everything that he does. If you look in Philippians 2, the passage of Jesus coming down into earth, we see the incarnation, and then we see the crucifixion, and then we see the resurrection, and then we see the ascension and the enthronement and the return of Christ. And at the end of the passage, we see the goal that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, but there's an even more final and ultimate goal. It says at the end of the verse, to the glory of God the Father. 
That is why God does everything that he does. Victory is for the glory of God, firstly. But secondly, notice also that victory involves man's judgment and man's salvation. Two things. Now we know, of course, that God and God alone ultimately brings salvation and judgment to people. He is the judge. He is the savior of all. And yet, as we see in this text, I think, God's people may be the means by which others are saved or condemned to judgment. So Israel, on the one hand, play a part in bringing judgment upon God's enemies. It's not as some commentators say who try and duck this and get round this, that they're just doing their own thing and the Lord doesn't want them to do this. It's not true. They are carrying out the judgment of God. Well, at the same time, notice also, wonderfully, they bring salvation. Rahab, who had turned from her sin, who had hidden the spies, is spared. More about that in a few weeks. But salvation comes through the means of God's people too. Now, our situation, again, is somewhat different. But it is still true that as God brings his kingdom plan to fruition on planet Earth, he involves his church in the dynamic of salvation and judgment. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other we are the fragrance of life. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. In other words, as we share the gospel, there is this divisive effect. Life on the one hand, death on the other, salvation to some, judgment to others. And I say it somberly tonight, but this is our job. To share the gospel in such a way that this two-tier impact is unavoidable. People around us cannot sit on the fence. They cannot fail to fall into one camp or the other. And if you say, well, that's a really tough calling. Paul knew that. He said in the very next verse, verse 16b, who is equal to such a task? And you're not, and I'm not, if Paul's not. But that's our job. War is sometimes a difficult business, isn't it? Someone has once said very vividly that the Christians, the Christians think of their church like various types of ship on the sea. Some think of the church like a small dinghy, perhaps with just enough space for themselves and maybe one or two other people. But that is not even church, never mind a biblical picture of it. Others still think of the church more like a cruise liner, where all their needs are met. And increasingly in Western culture, this is often a view that people take. And it is not a biblical view. Others still get closer to the truth. They suggest that the church is more like a hospital ship. Tending the wounded. Healing the spiritually sick. And there is certainly some truth to that. But it is only a half-truth. Let me suggest, if I may, that perhaps a more biblical picture of church might be a battleship. Yes, it is a battleship with a sick bee. But it is a battleship 
in a war as long as we are on this side of heaven. But I wonder, fellow believers in Christ, have we lost this picture? Have we allowed space for complacency and comfort when conflict is part of our calling? If we are to be a generation F of faith, not a generation U of unbelief, such a wartime mindset must, must be ours. Let's pray. Dear Father, may it be so. We pray that you might loosen all ties in us to the world and its pleasures and comforts, which lure us into an illusion that we are not at war. Help us to fight the good fight of faith and to live in such a way that as we share the gospel, there's a division between sheep and goats. Lord, we leave that to you sovereignly. But Lord, we pray that we might take up our responsibility in this serious task. May we be soldiers for the glory of your Son who gave himself at the cost of his life. And in his name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to head on our way, but first of all, let's sing as a song of affirmation and commitment the song that we learned at the start of the service. Let's use it not only as a prayer to God, but also as an encouragement to each other as we go on in this task. Let's stand as we sing, church. Church.